When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Jim Bob, and you're listening to the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not a Genre, the interview edition. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please remember to support this podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Go to youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. If you were just listening, you get to see videos for every single episode and so many more videos, over 600 at this point. And uh, subscribe there and like and share and all that stuff and comment, especially. I love to hear your comments. Also, go to nickdomatio.com where you get this podcast and music and everything else and sign up the contact page there. You get my free newsletter. And as always, please listen to and support my band, Rec, R-E-C, at recarea.bandcamp.com. Let's get to this week's episode. It's it's a bit of a monumental episode. Yes, it is the 33rd interview edition of MXG. It's also, though, well, it's also season five, episode 43 here, which again, this is the first season I've done more than 40 episodes. So it's getting pretty exciting, pretty crazy. But it's also book talk number seven, but a very special book talk, because uh, if you're watching, as you can see, I have the actual author of the book that we're talking about here. His name is Scott Shea. He's a producer for SiriusXM, but he is also, and most importantly for this podcast, an author and the author of All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart. I have read this book cover to cover. I took my time reading it because I like to absorb. And I got to say, it's it, I was hooked from the very beginning and all the way through the end. But we're going to get into that. Scott, how are you today? Hey, Nick, I'm well. Thanks for having me on, man. I'm uh, I'm honored to be uh, on this uh, particular edition of your show. Yay. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming. I'm really excited to have you. So before we get into the book, uh, why don't you uh, tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Well, I am a producer at Sirius XM. I work on the Catholic Channel on uh uh, Sirius XM 129. Uh, I have been with that channel since 2011. And um, I've been with Sirius XM as a whole since 2007. So, um, you know, I got into uh, documentary making through the channel. I was asked to, to put uh, uh, a few together. Well, actually, the first one was a two-parter on Pope Francis that we did back when he was coming to the United States back in 2015. My program director at the time saw that I, you know, enjoyed uh, I was a history buff and uh, enjoyed uh, telling a story, and uh, she commissioned me to write the uh, the, the uh, documentary and produce it. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the uh, the process, the interviewing, the researching. Did they asked me to do about four other documentaries, and uh, after that, I was like, you. You know what I, I think i'd like to write a book i think that's kind of my logical next step and uh you know i am a music fan that is my passion uh particularly um you know post-war um pop music of all genres nice 
um, especially 50s and 60s. And I uh, was looking for a subject to write on and, you know, stumbled that, the, you know, just came wanted to read about the mamas and the papas. And I saw that there wasn't a book written in this century or like maybe right at the start of the century. 2000, I think, was the last one. Very thin bookshelf. You know, Mama, uh, uh, Mama Michelle, I should say, or Michelle Phillips and and John, uh, her ex-husband, both put out competing autobiographies in 1986 but you know a lot of things have happened since then you know books have you know especially for music of that era have kind of taken on a whole new meaning or just a whole new approach to kind of peeling back the layers and and getting into involved and you know looking into what made everything tick and there wasn't anything really like that on them so i figured well here we go this is what i've been looking for and i started i you know i couldn't read about it so i started writing about them you know, that's and that was actually going to be my first question, which was why you wrote this. And while I was reading it, I kind of got that sense because you don't just talk about the mamas and the papas as a group. You know, we're looking looking at the title of the book and I'm saying this to everybody out there. You might assume that it's OK. They got together in the mid 60s. They broke up a few years later. They put out these albums you know, maybe a little bit of backstory, but it goes way further than that. You you start from, you know, John Phillips' birth and even before, talk about his family history and all of that and lead up to the formation of the, the group and then the breakup of the group. And then you go beyond that. And while you're doing it, you're interweaving culture and and politics and things that are going on in the music world, especially throughout all of those various eras, there's almost, it's like a mini history of a pop music in a sense. Yeah. That's really what I wanted to do. I kind of wanted to put people in that time, even though I wasn't alive during that time, you know, (laughs) that time is not different than any other time. I mean, there's always different things. There's nuance and everything for every generation, but the basic human elements always still exist, no matter if it's, you know, social media, or if you only have newspapers and television, you know, we've all experienced the same things. And, you know, I'm just trying to, you just want to try to put everybody into that time period, not thinking ahead, you know, maybe looking back, obviously, because you can do that when you're in that era. But yeah, and and I didn't want to do it the old fashioned way. Like, you know, it was 1966. Uh, the number one song was, that's, you know, I wanted to just kind of just like, you know, if you turn the radio on, this is what you heard. You know, these were the people who were bringing you the music. This is what was going on in the world. And, you know, Vietnam and civil rights era uh, and all that stuff was going on uh, right as the mamas and the papas were breaking. And it was just kind of really a perfect storm. So, yeah, I would. I re- I, you know, I'm glad that uh, you were able to come away with that. That's really what I was trying to go for and, and uh, just really wanted to put people into that time period because I, I think that's a, a you know, it's, it's one thing I pointed out in the book is like when the mamas and the papas showed up on the world stage. And you, by the world stage, I mean the United States, because that's where they hit first. And that was really that it was and is the biggest music and entertainment market out there. That's what everybody strives to to be a, a hit in the United States. You know, in other countries, they might appreciate the music more like, you know, the UK. They're definitely more aficionados and and they they they, they have a deep, deeper appreciation for the music. But we're all kind of about the moment here and being on the big stage. Uh, but from that moment they hit that, they were 
they look different. I mean, we take it for granted now because like, we're all, we live in a very casual culture and they dress very casually for the time. Whereas, you know, artists were coming out in suits or, you know, matching outfits and, and, you know, ma matching hairstyles. They just, they showed up in t-shirts and button downs. Well, I wouldn't say t-shirts, but jeans and, and dungarees or slacks, you know, and, and uh, just kind of looking unkempt. So that was very, uh, and that was very unusual for the time that that took a lot of people aback uh, when they first saw that on like ed sullivan or the hollywood palace um but um you know when they heard him sing it was a whole different world because they that was a or they were a great uh four-piece harmony group especially for you know four people who weren't even related you know they had a, just an incredible uh, just an incredible sound uh and uh, people saw that you know, there's a lot you've you brought up here, but I'm going to kind of leap off of the last thing you said, because it it kind of leads to the beginning of the book. And and that is you described, you know, in, in you know, real detail how the quality of each person's voice and the mamas and the papas and where they came from and why they were great singers or not so great singers or whatever it was. And and especially John Phillips history in music and as a vocal arranger and as a, and as kind of the conductor or director of the music and not just the writer and his ability to take people who were not related and who hadn't really performed together much, if at all prior to that and create a sound that made it seem like they were all one voice. You know? Yeah. That was really his strong suit. He was very good. And, you know, he, he did that all the time. That was his strength. He could find uh, uh, people that uh, like, I'm not a very good singer. I don't know how good of a singer you are. I know you're in a band. Um, so I'm assuming you could probably sing moderately well, or at least background vocals, yeah, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and he could take you, me and one other guy and just kind of find our, or, or, or gal and just find our strengths, uh, find a, you know, something that we can all match you know, something that that just plays off each other very well, different different octaves, different ranges, and 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 get the best out of us. And uh, you know, and that's that's really what a great uh, arranger can do. Uh, you know, not everybody in a choir is a great singer, but uh, you know, the choir master, if he can he can uh, find everybody's strength, know what everybody's weakness is, and uh, and and arrange a nice scale of of voices. Uh, you can make a really nice sound. I, I liken it to when I was um, when I first got out of college, I used to go to this monastery um, that was close by just to, you know, just to pray. And they, they would do the the liturgy, of the hours throughout the day. And the, the closing one before bedtime was uh, was called Compline or it is called Compline. And at the end of at the end of each one is a, they sing a song and uh, yes, like a hymn. Uh, it's usually a psalm uh, from the book of Psalms. Yeah. And um there was one guy there, one monk who had a beautiful voice, this young guy. And it's like, he carried them. And it's like, you look forward to it. It's like, you know, the rest of them couldn't sing worth a lick, but you know, with him kind of guiding everybody and his voice soaring, it was, it made a, it made it for a beautiful thing. And, you know, that, and I think when I was, when I was writing about the mamas and the papas and what John did, 
that that was the first thing that kind of came to mind. I was like, wow, you know, it's and, and when you get somebody like Cass Elliott or Scott McKenzie or Denny Doherty who can sing really well, it just it just makes it, you know, makes it a playground. So, um, you know, he was uh, definitely skilled. And I, I kind of liken him to Brian Wilson uh, in that area because uh, they, you know, they both both were kids of the 50s, you know, and they weren't really rock and roll followers. John was a high lows uh, fan that was a, a kind of a jazzy vocal quartet. And uh, uh, as a lot of people know, Brian Wilson was a four freshman guy and uh, they they both kind of brought that to rock and roll music. Yeah, I think the only difference really is Brian Wilson was much, much more prolific than than John. You know, John was kind of <laughs> limited in his proficiency. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Well, for a lot of reasons too. And, and I mean, again, I, everything you're saying is just making my head explode because there's just so many great, you know, things that you're bringing up. Uh, I want to focus a little bit more on the, on the vocalization for a second and say that, uh, yeah, yesterday I, I did, um, a recording session for another band and they needed, uh, backup vocals to kind of flesh out the recording they were doing. And the guy who was also the songwriter said, listen, I'm going to bring you in and I know you can sing, but your tone might not be right. So we're going to try it out. And if it doesn't work, no hard feelings. I'll give you a little something, whatever. But and if it does work, great. We'll go forward. We'll do the whole whole album. And fortunately, it, it worked out. But he had four different people singing multi layered harmonies in there, and needed to know as the as the producer as well as the writer and all that that those voices would mesh. Right. And with the you know with somebody, what I found interesting with John's history was. I guess I sort of could have guessed that he would have been into those vocal groups, but it wouldn't have jumped out at me because in my mind, the reference would have been, you know, Beatles and Beach Boys and all the, uh, and even, even Everly Brothers and other bands who were doing, you know, harmonies that were well known for their harmonies at the time. But when you listen to his arrangements and how intricate they can be, and even the, the, the tone that he was going for with the voices, 
it makes so much sense that he was into, you know, the, the, that kind of music. Yeah. And then when you impose on that, it was you, you kind of the way you described it, it was as though you were piecing together the sound of the mamas and the papas based on the history of the kind of music John was into. There's yeah. a little bit of jazz in there and the vocal and then folk music. And then finally at the very, you know, gritting his teeth, you know, rock music and all of those things come together and pop music, of course, to create the sound that they had. Yeah. Especially the folk, you know, he, he really was into the, the, he really brought folk music arrangements. Dick Weissman was a really, you know, I would say really a big mentor to him. I mean, they were both in the journeyman and uh, Dick was a folk music extraordinaire, still is, uh, and mm. uh, taught John a lot of things. It's funny. He told me that um, he, after after I sent him a copy of the book and he read it and he, he so, you know, he emailed me a lot of stuff that he really enjoyed the book. And he said that one thing he never he didn't tell me and I wish he had was that, the you know, Creek. Creek Alley comes in on like a seventh note or something, you know, and uh, uh, <laughs> I guess it's an A7 or 7A. I'm not, yeah, I'm not seven, a, I'm a not seven chord. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a seven. He, said, he said he taught him that because, you know, he uh, Dick was such a lead belly fan. He, he did a, a, a you know, like a, a term paper or his college thesis on lead belly. Oh. And, uh, you know, he, he said nobody, he was the only one who came in on a chord like that, you know, on a note. And, um, you know, he taught John that. And when you listen to Creaky Alley, that's, uh, that's the way it comes in. But, um, yeah, it is. It definitely doesn't jump out at you because it doesn't sound like you know, vocalese from the 1950s, which is what John was into. But, you know, it did, it did, you know, he took, you know, he took that and, and just fit it and adapted it to folk rock, you know, really beautifully. Um, and, you know, he was also, you know, a product of the times. He liked, you know, after hearing Mr. Tambourine Man and, you know, Do You Believe in Magic and all this other stuff that uh, that was coming out at the time. I think he was he was he jumped on board, you know, and even the stuff that the Beatles were cranking out. I know he wasn't a big fan of stuff he first heard but i know he liked you know rubber soul and uh you know a revolver and they, when they went over to england the, the revolver was actually being it was in the mixing stages and they hooked up with the, a few of the beatles and it always seemed like the beatles were carrying around acetates of their albums that they played for everybody <laughs> hey you only hear their new album is coming yeah. out you know it's just like, right it's like you always hear about them playing they, you know you know, David Crosby comes to town and Paul's like, hey, you want to hear Sergeant Pepper? It's not out yet, you know, and uh, <laughs> things like that. So, so you know, so they uh, so, yeah. And, you know, he, and he absorbed all that stuff. So, yeah, he was really a, a brilliant musician. And it's just a shame that he wasn't more prolific because or or even really more dedicated to making music because, you know, eventually the drugs just kind of took over and he was put more time and effort into into that than to, to making music and you know we all kind of suffer as uh, as fans i couldn't agree more i i do this kind of sub series on on the podcast called uh death is dumb and i talk about you know tragic deaths in music and how and the main point more than anything being that it it robbed us of the future of that person's music and yeah. And in a way, how everything, you know, wound down. And I know we're jumping ahead a little with the mamas and the papas. The the drugs, in a sense, was not a complete, but a, almost a full creative death for him, you know. Yeah, it really was. I mean, some some artists, you know, were able to 
even still create uh, while doing that, um, uh, you know, as difficult as that, I can't even imagine. But uh, mm-hmm. John, for John, it was, a, you know, he he was the, the, the you know, addiction ran in his family. His father was a uh, was an alcoholic and, uh, you know, and he grew up in, in that, uh, it's just, you know, it's a learn learned behavior. So uh, and he really kind of adapted that and really kind of almost took it next level uh, with with the hard drugs. So, um, you know, it was, um, it was just too bad that, uh, that it, it came to that. Uh, and, uh, you know, like you said, we, we all lost out on it and, and, you know, even in some ways it's like, and it's, it's, it sounds cruel to say, but like, you wonder if it's even a blessing. Cause like with John Lennon, you wonder what John Lennon would have sounded like in the nineties when, you know, every, <laughs> it seems like every artist who came up in the sixties made really bad music in the late 80s and 90s but you know maybe right, right, right right maybe john would have you never know yeah <laughs> yeah no that's true yeah well it which is interesting because i didn't know that john phillips was a co-writer of uh, kokomo yeah well yeah he wrote that song um and his version is a lot different than uh, the travelogue that the beach boys put together it was okay. uh, i should say mike love and terry melcher put together okay. uh it was um really a lament because as you'll see in the book one of john's favorite things to do whenever he needed to clear his head was like go to the tropics you know go to the islands he did that uh, quite often and uh you know that song is kind of looking back on that in kind of a, a you know a, a lamentful kind of way because it's it's almost about lost love and uh and and times past and you know mike love and and terry melcher just kind of you know made it uh, you know about you know hops to island hopping on the in the in the caribbean and it worked well for him because it was a number one hit and and, hit, and, yeah. you know, and it just shows how john's talent was because he hadn't written a song in years and one of his you know one of the first ones that he cranks out after you know getting clean is a number one hit for the beach boys you know yeah right is there is there a version of his version of that song recorded anywhere there is yeah it was released on a compilation uh, that came out about maybe 10 15 years ago called many mamas and many papas and it's actually a demo uh you know it's it, and it's not just a demo where he's like strumming a guitar it's it's got full instrumentation on it and it's Denny Doherty and Scott McKenzie actually sharing lead vocals it's quite good actually i prefer it over the beach boys version myself Oh, I, I got to listen to it then. I got to find that. Definitely. I'll send it to you after the show. Oh, thank you. That'd be <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I, you know, and you, you bring up a, a couple of things about John and, and one is, you know, that kind of melancholy that he had that really, to me, infused a lot of the music. I mean, when you think even about their big hits, like Monday, Monday and California dreaming and, and the story behind, I saw her again and all of that. And so many of the others, there was this, him kind of working out the the you know darker parts of life and what was going on in his life and and his soul and and all of that and yet found a way to make the music transcend that melancholy with the way he put the voices together yeah they're sad songs but they have kind of a jumpy uplifting i don't want to say jumpy but a, an uplifting a bright uh song arrangement to them you know like uh a Monday, Monday, for instance, you know, that's about Michelle leaving him, uh, you know, early on in their marriage, you know, and going back to uh, California to, to try to clear her head because she was, you know, a, a young, almost child bride, you know. Yeah. Um, but, 
Yeah, and I saw her again. That's about. I mean, there's not that that song just like makes you get up and want, want to get up and dance, and yes. uh, you know that's that's about the <laughs> affair between Denny and Michelle, and kind of him purposely writing Denny to be a total cad when you when you read the lyrics. Yeah, like, you know, you know, it's just like you know, he's like, hey, I'm I love this. I'm just lying to this girl, you know, you know. It, I, it's <laughs> funny. It was it wasn't the only time that he wrote lyrics that were related to somebody in the band and then had that person sing those lyrics. And, and what a, what kind of energy that gives the song, especially now that you know, the story behind it, you know, to be singing essentially about like a removed version of yourself. Yeah. Wow. You know? Yeah. And like even in creaky alley where, you know, he has that line, no one's getting fat except mama Cass. Yes. And it's like, Ooh, even Michelle was like she kind of <laughs> shrieked because they wrote that one together, you know, and uh, she kind of like was she figured, oh, John's just that's a placeholder. John's going to replace it, you know, and because she and uh, and John had a, a, a cast and John had a really, you know, kind of, uh, you know, headbutting relationship. They didn't uh, see eye to eye on a lot of things, weren't very friendly uh, with each other outside mm-hmm. of being in the band together. And, you know, that was just kind of a a mean kind of thing to say, but like she counterpunched him by singing that song with as much vim and vigor as she could muster. And, you know, it's it just, you know, it's just, it's funny the way they, they went back and forth like that. God. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, again, what incredible energy it brings the songs. And I, you know, I did an episode on uh, Bono's recent book and something that he said in there was that he prefers music that has a kind of bittersweet quality to it that talks about you know, let's say something positive, but throws a little shadow into it or vice versa. And that's something that John was amazing at, at writing. Yeah, I agree. I I like that myself. And, um, uh, yeah, John was, uh, he was pretty expert at at doing that because, you know, I think that's really kind of the the kind of person he was. It's like, you know, even when things were going good for him, he couldn't help, but like, you know, harm himself, you know, (laughs) right. He did that. He did that throughout his life. So, which had quite a bit to do with his, his, his background. And I think the, I think I knew that I would enjoy the book. Like I wasn't sure what to expect, of course. And I've read a few, you know, histories of things and some of them, like I said, they can be a little dry. I, but the minute I started the book, I was like, Oh, this is going to be different because you're talking about like the history, even before he was born and then getting, you know, pretty quickly into how his family life was and all of that. And it's, I mean, again, telling even some parts of the story of America, it was very kind of Americana in a way. Yeah. And well, and that's, yeah, Mm. his early life story was, it was full of that. It's, you know, it's got world war one, the old West, it's got, you know, uh, it's got Native American. It's got uh, you know the teenagers at the drive-in, you know, and car hops and all that stuff. And it's just it, it was just quite fascinating. And you know, I was really in. You know, Peter Ames Carlin is a great um, author. Uh, he's a very big influence on on me. He he wrote he he wrote a great book on Brian Wilson. Uh, one of his, I think it was his very first book that he put out. And in you know, I, I kind of followed his model in that you know he talked about the. I guess the etymology of the Wilson family uh, and how they came from like Wisconsin or somewhere in the Midwest and emigrated, you know, during the the great uh, Western migration uh, to California and lived on the beach. And I found that quite fascinating. And, you know, when I read John's early story, I was like, I, I needed to, uh, to try to, 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 
look into this. And I was actually able to connect with a guy who ran a museum there in Okamogi, uh, where, mm. you know, John and his, uh, John's parents had met and, uh, it was, he was able to get me some, some really, uh, detailed information about, uh, about that area during that time. Wow. Yeah. The research you've done, you did must've been just so extensive. I mean, I saw your, your bibliography back there and it's, <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. It was fun though. I enjoyed it. I, I, I get a, I get a kick doing that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can tell uh, the, so, right. So the book, the book starts with that history. It goes into John and you stay with John for quite a while, which I think emphasizes the fact that his, his creative, you know, uh, force was really what brought that band together and not having, not having known really the history of the band. I know I didn't know any of the history. I'll say that right off the bat that all I knew was they were a band that made a huge splash in the sixties, had a bunch of hits that showed they were way more than a one hit wonder had a, you know, a handful of, of good albums. And beyond that, I knew nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you, again, I, I, we don't have to go into it again, but just the history of how the music was formed and then where the music went afterward, just, as a musician was just hugely fascinating to me because then what I did was listen to their entire discography, which isn't that long. So anybody, you know, anybody could do it. I recommend it, you know, and, and hear the trajectory of, you know, the, none of their albums were so vastly different that you would think they were another band. And yet there's, there's a slightly different sound on each album that shows that he always had his ear to the ground, you know, Mm -hmm whether it was his love of music and he was looking for something new to infuse the music with or his love of wanting to succeed in competition and saying like, well, I need to keep with the times and make, you know, make sure that I'm writing things that will be relevant. He found a way to do that to my mind, really throughout the, their career. Yeah, he did. And, uh, you know, it, it, and it even like he was always looking for, um, really just to uh, sophistication in music you know he was um especially in pop music he once he got involved you know when he was a folk musician he got really snobby you know and wanted you know just thought of you know folk music as pure music as the best it can't be surpassed and always was looking for ways to display it in a really positive light and then when he carried that over into the to the rock and roll world that's what got us the monterey pop festival because you know rock and roll was still much very very much looked down on by the by the elite by the by the the parents the middle-aged people the people over 30 i should say you know and he really wanted to bring a level of respectability because he saw it it was getting much more sophisticated you know with and the beatles uh, and the rolling stones and the birds and they they and love and spoonful they all helped contribute to that and that's what gave us the monterey pop festival and uh, you know and it, it was he wanted it to be different you know he it wasn't his idea initially it was brought to him by a couple couple guys alan parisier and ben shapiro and he kind of took it over and ran it and made it what it is they you know they were just looking to do, make it a, just another concert they were they wanted to help pay for the legal funds for kids who were arrested at the sunset strip riots in late 1966 where you know help you know, pay for their, you know, a lot of them were got arrested and they felt that that was unjust and they, they did a benefit concert for that, but they wanted to take it to the next level and do like a festival. Well, John kind of took that over, you know, added a third day and then really 
sought out to get the, the most cutting edge groups, groups that were kind of on the periphery that were rising, you know, and it didn't want to make it like a Dick Clark's caravan of stars, you know, and nothing against those. I mean, I, you know, you see, you see the list of the groups that are on those. I love them. You know, I love little mm-hmm. Anthony and the Imperials, you know, right. but, um, you know, he wanted, um, he wanted it to be uh, something more than that. And so, you know, he got, you know, the top, some of the top names, uh, some of the, the, the fathers of what, you know, what, like the birds were there, they were kind of considered the fathers of folk rock, mm. you know, and he got, uh, the cutting edge. He wanted those bands from San Francisco that were still kind of, they were, they were bubbling under the surface, uh, but they were getting ready to explode like the Jefferson airplane and the grateful dead and Quicksilver messenger service and big brother and the holding company, which at that time had Janis Joplin as the lead singer. And then you got canned heat. And then, you know, when they got Andrew Lou Goldham in- involved, the-, the Rolling Stones manager who was, you know, on the verge of, of being sacked by them, you right. know, they got the who in and they got Jimi Hendrix experience and, you know, Eric Burden and his reformed animals and, they got Otis Redding, you know, it was just, right. uh, it was an incredible, uh, you know, incredible, uh, um, event that he put on that we're still talking about and still revering today. It's the, it's the father of all rock festivals. Yeah. I had no idea he was involved in it at all. And when, you know, and I knew enough about it to know kind of the big names who were there, but when you, you, I took a note here, which I keep, you know, looking over referring to my host, uh, is that, uh, the, you, the way you describe Monterey pop, the, the, you know, pre-production while it was going on and all of that behind the scenes, what was going on on stage really made it feel in, in a way like I was living through it. Like it, it was just so visceral and right. you created that world in a, in a, like it was a full picture of the world. And that gave me a better sense of how monumental it was because we do take those things for granted now. I mean, there's been, you know, festivals happening ever since then at some point every year, really. Yeah. And, you know, and and for that to have been that first big one where you take kind of John's snobbishness and he's saying, well, now that I'm doing this music, I want to show the world that it's as legitimate as any other kind of music. Let me help craft this festival to kind of display that it it makes it even more impressive that uh, that that festival went off as it did yeah it did and it was you know and it had it had a few you know it got a, a little bit of a shaky start and had a few hiccups in there it wasn't it wasn't perfect but that i but to me that's what makes it great you know it's like i like those that's why i like i'm a college football fan i love college football more than nice. pro football because i like those rough edges you know so, you know you watch the nfl and it's perfect you know uh and you okay. know it's almost perfect but college football like a team can be down by three touchdowns and still come back and win in the fourth quarter you know you'd never <laughs> see that in the nfl uh but you know it's it's you know and so yeah i like those rough edges it is probably my favorite festival of all of them woodstock is great you know i have that uh that i, got, I was able to get that box set that came out a few years ago that was the entire performance oh. uh but um yeah so it's it's uh it was really interesting and uh yeah, I did. Thanks. I appreciate you you pointing that out. I really did try to put people in there, you know, and take them kind of almost artist by artist and obviously not hang too long there because, you know, you got to you get a good story has to move. But, you know, we've all been to festivals. We've all been to football games or any large gatherings where there's like minded people and we're all excited and we're happy to be here and. Um, and that's kind of, uh, that's kind of what I, uh, my interpretation of what, how the Monterey pop festival came off and that it was just, 
everybody was just happy to be there. It was colorful. It was the dawn of a new era. There was hope and hope springs eternal. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a giant youth movement going to uh, that area of the country at that particular time. It was just like, it was like the perfect storm. And I, I mean, I hate using that analogy, but it's true. You had, you had uh, Sergeant Pepper just came out, you know, a couple of weeks earlier, you got the Monterey Pop Festival, you got the summer of love in just, just getting started in San Francisco, everybody moving to hate Ashbury and, you know, things eventually turned dark there, but you know, it's kind of, you know, it, thinking back at that area era at that time and having it, you know, uh, captured on celluloid and things like uh, Sergeant Pepper and the Monterey pop festival film and the box set that's come out since then. It's just, it's, it's a nice thing to hear. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, quick aside. I, you, you have, I'm not, I don't watch college football the way you explained it. It's the first time it's made sense to me as to why people <laughs> do it, which yeah. I, that kind of perfect imperfection, you know, and, and I, yeah. I, I love that. Um, but I, oh, now I hope I didn't just lose the thought that I had, but you, you were talking, <laughs> you were, you were talking about, um, oh yeah, this is so I want to tell people there that this, this is one of a couple hundred or more tidbits that you will love in this book so don't you know this just scratches the surface but i wanted to bring this up because it's it's not really uh related to the mamas and the papas but it's something i didn't know which is i've always loved the song for what it's worth and growing up honestly till i read this book my assumption was that it was written about the vietnam war right but you talk about how that's that wasn't the case. There were some other protests going on or something. Right. Yeah. Well, it, for, and for anybody who might not know, it's it's for what it's worth. It's Buffalo Springfield, you know, the group with Stephen Stills and Neil, Neil Young and stop. Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. That's kind of how it's known. But yeah, um, yeah it was kind of co-opted like a lot of songs or a few others was co-opted by the Vietnam uh, movement. And every film like you see takes place in Vietnam, like whether it's Forrest Gump or, you know, anything else they, they always play that when they're walking through the through the rice paddies you know and getting ready to, you know, to fire <laughs> right. their machine guns right um but uh yeah it was written for the uh sunset strip riots which were you know the the city of los angeles was looking to uh you know they want the the mayor there or somebody wanted to um have a, a major thoroughfare cut through the hollywood hills right there from the strip you know, to get everybody out to, um, I guess it's San Bernardino is that is one of the, one of the, I'm not, I'm not into Los Angeles expert. I, I was, when I wrote the book, I, it's, it's been a few years now. So forgive me. But they <laughs> no. wanted to connect to one part of Los Angeles to, to the Northern part and cut through the Hollywood Hills. I don't know how the plaque they had to do that. Cause you know, I can't imagine every, anybody in Laurel Canyon and Bel Air saying, yeah, sure. Just cut a big highway <laughs> right. through here. So in order to do that, they had to just kind of shut down some areas of the strip and uh, one of the places, the, m- the major hubbos was this place called Pandora's Box. Uh, it was an under 21 club. So, you know, teenagers could hang out in there. And it's actually where John got his start uh, in the late 50s. And um, yeah, it's the, the aftermath, there was, a, you know, it, it started off peaceful. It became a riot. The cops got involved. It was it was it was scary. And Stephen Stills was right there and he saw the whole thing and he and he wrote it, wrote that song for as it kind of a to memorialize that. I love that story in particular because it it shows how if you you know if you are an adept songwriter you understand how to 
capture a moment in a way that doesn't make it so specific that, you know, it like he could have written a song about this highway won't go through here or something <laughs> like that, you know, but yeah. he did, but he made it into something just spiritual almost. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's very, like you say, it's very abstract. You can kind of fit it into a lot of different things. And, you know, uh, you know, his bandmate Neil Young was, was very good at, at songs like that. I mean, as you read the lyrics to Cowgirl in the Sand, it's like nothing makes sense, but it just paints this <laughs> incredible picture, you know, purple yeah. words on a gray background. What does that even mean? But it's, it's cool, you know, right. it's, it's art, it's abstract art. And, um, yeah. And, you know, he wasn't the only one. The Monkees, the Mike, Michael Nesmith, who I absolutely love. He's one of my favorites since since I was a kid. He wrote a song called Daily Nightly, which is about the same thing. And it's just it's it, and you want to talk about abstract lyrics. I and mean, there's no way you could even come close to pinpointing that to being about anything. But it was about the it was about the riots. And uh, a lot of people were there. I know uh, I think Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson, a lot of people came down to just kind of either just take in the spectacle or to lend their support. You know, it was it was a big deal. And, uh, you know, the mamas and the papas were about as far away as they can be. I think they were all on tour. I think they were actually out touring. One of the rare times they actually went out to tour mm. uh, and um you know, didn't really learn about any of that stuff till it came back, which is why I think John's contributed to John's kind of disinterest in making it a festival to bail out, uh, you know, little, uh, you know, 16 year old kids who were <laughs> being, being uh, you know, persecuted by the big, bad local government. Um, you right. know, I think he wanted to, uh, you know, make it just more than that, you know, a, a cultural moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a couple of celebrities in there and it brought up the the thought that you, you know, the celebrities are kind of peppered throughout this, not just because they were musicians who became famous and eventually, you know, rubbed elbows with other musicians like that, but that there were actors and uh, especially, you know, actors aligned with like the hippie movement and progressivism and all of that, who ended up kind of hanging with them and there were relationships and things like that. And parties that they would have at that amazing house that you described that, mm -hmm. you know, I'd love to get into and and how much of that kind of intertwined in that kind of, you know, California, Southern SoCal, Laurel Canyon scene and that and that and again, things that I I knew enough of to get the sense like, yeah, that I've been, it's been described that that's what it's like. And I've seen movies and, and, and stuff like that, but had no idea that the mamas and the papas were so involved in all of that. Yeah. They, I mean, gosh, everybody from, you know, the members of the birds to uh, Peter to a, uh, Warren Beatty and just all these people they roll Roman Polanski and, and you know that house that I, I talked about that's been leveled that's no they're no longer there it's, uh, it's what? kind of a yeah it's kind of a shame you there's some some guy up there buying a bunch of land you know but it's actually it's it's I don't know if you ever watched the Beverly Hillbillies, but it was actually located yeah. across from that the enormous mansion where they filmed all the exterior shots, uh, you know, which is still there. That's still there. That thing is like I would, that's a house I would like to go and see. But that was their next door neighbor. But huh. uh, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty crazy, pretty pretty cr crazy party scene, and really just just wacky. It's just like uh, you know they would just lay out pills on the table and just people would just pick up pills and pop them. It's how dangerous. And there's like little kids running around and dogs and, you know, it's just like, right. I, I just picture my wife in that scenario. I just picture my wife is like her head exploding. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're just letting the kids roam around. The yeah, middle she'd be of, sweeping you know, up the pill pills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
exactly yelling at people yeah <laughs> yeah it's it it's funny because this you know i mean we think of that culture that kind of swirled around rock music for quite a while and even honestly through the 90s in a lot of ways you know with the you know drugs and all that and grunge and and etc but what i found interesting was that the way you described the ins and outs of the members of the band that did have things to do with you know, uh, drug abuse and alcoholism and, and a lot of, you know, uh, sleeping around there, there were band members, you know, like obviously John and Michelle, but then Cass was in love with Denny and like all the things that were happening in between there. The first thing that came to mind was Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. My, you know, my thought was, Jesus, they, they had such a similar, you know, uh, weirdness within their band and yet for some reason, and I'm sure there were drugs somewhere in there too, but for some reason they were able to pull it together to create, to con- create and continue to create music with it, with a decades long career, uh, as opposed to the mamas and the papas that just sort of, you know, crumbled in, you know, imploded in a way. Yeah. And you're not the first person to point out that, uh, that comparison and, uh, it's definitely, they were definitely Fleetwood Mac before Fleetwood Mac, but you know, Fleetwood Mac was able to sustain itself for a long time, but there was always that tension that just, you know, Lindsay would leave and, and come back and, you know, and then, you know, Christine was gone and then, you know, now they kicked Lindsay out again, you know, and now Christine's passed. Right, that's know, it's right. Like, it's still it's not like, done. Yeah. It's, and it's still, I think it all goes all the way back to that, you know, their, their romance from the late sixties, the early seventies. Right. But uh, yeah. And again, another talent, you know, and another incredibly talented musician like Lindsay Buckingham and uh, you know, great singers. And, and, and it's just, it, it is amazing. Um, it's amazing what human nature can do, how it can really just kind of torpedo a good thing and how emotions get involved. And just like for John and Michelle, it was just uh, like they just couldn't get past that. It, even when they they got divorced, you know, it was amicable for a little while. And then it got, you know, then, you know, th- th- their child became a kind of a China became kind of a you know, uh, something to a pawn for them. And it, it's just, you know, it just led to bad feelings. And then, then John really got really messed up into the harder drugs like uh, cocaine and heroin. And, you know, mm-hmm. that was just, uh, that just kind of sealed the deal for, you know, and then of course cast dying, I think was the real, um, that was really kind of the deflator because you you just can't have the mamas and the papas without cash. And John tried in the, in the eighties and it's just, right really kind of became you know a joke of a tour i've listened to on that that uh, compilation i i had mentioned that had um the the kokomo demo they actually have some recordings of that group with you know denny and spanky mcfarland from spanky and our gang who came in and took over for cash and 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 some of them are are quite good i mean it just showed john was able he was it's and it sounded like early 80s music it sounded like like quarter flash or something you know oh really (laughs) you know i need to hear that too then yeah Yeah. yeah. (laughs) i'll send you the whole thing um but uh yeah it was um you know it was i think even a couple of tracks might have been produced by mick ronson if i believe uh, from from oh. David Bowie's group, you know, but um, holy crap, uh, yeah, it was uh, it it just she was really the linchpin, uh, the 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 hallmark of their sound. It's almost kind of like 
Roger McGuinn's Rickenbacker with the birds, you know, it's just like you need you needed that 12 string Rickenbacker. That's the bird sound. And and it's funny because the birds and the Baba, mamas and, the, and I should say the birds and John both made that mistake. They both had reunion albums in the early 70s, right around the same time. Mamas and the Papas had that one in 71. And the birds had one in 73. Okay. And um, John produced the 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 Mamas and the Papas. It was their fifth and final album. It's called People Like Us. Really updated the sound got away from everything you know it, he he brought in a bunch of ex motown uh session musicians and kind of gave it a nice kind of r&b almost kind of flavor which i love and the and he wrote these songs and they were he really wrote them quickly but they were there's some incredible songs problem was he mixed cast completely out of it in the final mixing stages and the way he went about recording it was really weird it was just like he recorded them all on vocal separate vocal tracks and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't you have to bring people back and it was just it was so unnecessary like why don't you just record everybody while we're here you know and um so he um but he mixed her right out you could barely hear her you know and the birds did david crosby produced a reunion album in 73 and there's some good songs on there some clunkers but like there's no sign of the the Rickenbacker twelve string that you know the, the, you hear in turn 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 and Mister Tambourine Man. It's just like where is that? We need that. <laughs> Can't you update it for for seventy three? And I think had the both of those artists done that, they probably those reunion albums probably would have been uh, you know uh, better received because there's there's good stuff on there. I agree. And I also, I agree that you, you, I think for any band who wants to con- continue to connect with their fans, but also with the charts, you need that one foot in what made you the band that you are. And then the other foot in well, what's going on now. And, yeah. and, and I will say I was, I had never heard that fifth album until yesterday. And I was blown away. Like there, is, I love the sound of it. And I really, there were so many good songs yeah. on there but it did only it, it it and I was like yes this is the most different of the five and I and my first thought was well that's because it's the Motown influence and you know it's more R and B and everything and I love that about it but then you bring up that Cass was kind of nowhere to be found on there yeah and they made up these weird excuses like she was sick or she you know she couldn't come or this that and the other but they somebody remixed that album about seven years ago and was able to lift her vocals up into it it's on this this rare compilation called the anthology i can send that to you as well yes (laughs) got a lot (laughs) of listening um, to do yeah for real and uh it's it's refreshing it works on but it doesn't work on every song right some songs that john does or that that when you hear the like there's a song one of the best songs is a song called step out and the original version is is much better than the the version they remix with Cass in it Uh, but uh but there's a song uh one of my favorite songs is called snow queen of texas it's off that album and the the remastered version is crisp it's got Cass in it it's beautiful uh and it's uh you know i really think it's an underrated album i i I like the fact like you said that he updated the sound he didn't go back to the wrecking crew and 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 record at western studios he he did it at a different place you know and and he brought in different musicians and gave the sound of 1971 you know and because you're not going to make you know i i get this to an argument with my father-in-law all the time uh, over bruce springsteen because he likes you know born to run and before you know greetings the first second album and i do too i mean like i love that era 
but he he wishes Bruce kept with that. And I was like, well, you know, you're not going to make an album in 1980 or 81 or 84 that sounds like 1974 and be relevant. You're not going to be you're not going to become the boss, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, say you say the same thing for somebody like Genesis. He can't make a song like, you know, the Return of the Giant Hogweed in 1985 and right, and right, be relevant. You know, it's just like, you know, I I and I I, I like the attitude. I like watching a group grow. And, you know the the Genesis from 1971 doesn't sound like Genesis from 1981, but nor should they, you know, it's, it's, that's what good artists do. That's amazing. I, I just did. In fact, this, uh, the, the, I guess that will be the week before this episode airs. Uh, those of you out there, I think it's episode <laughs> 42. Uh, I did an, uh, an episode on Paul McCartney's solo career and the, the, other than the obvious stuff, the talent and the longevity and blah, blah. What really, the thing that really popped out at me the most is that he, he never rested on his sound. He never rested on his talent. He, he never, he never rested on, well, I'm only good at this. He's constantly exploring and adding new elements to his music up to this day, even, mm-hmm. which, which makes him remain, if not always chart relevant, musically relevant. And which is more important anyway, and when you say something like we hear about their fifth album and how much that, how different that was. And one of my favorite songs in there is shooting star. I, I, when I heard that, I was like, Oh my God, this is the mamas <laughs> and the papas. Yeah. Then you talk about how they came back in the eighties. And my assumption was, well, it was just a reunion tour or a partial reunion tour. And they were just kind of redoing whatever they did. And then you say that it sounded like eighties music. I'm so compelled to listen to that now because that's, like the way you talk about Genesis, that's my kind of artist is somebody who doesn't just say, well, I was good at this. I'm going to do this again. It's like, what yeah. else can I add to this to make it even better, or even more relevant? And the, and the public is so resist. They resist that, you know, they want it. They want you to bring back the old times. They want you to sound like the mamas and the papas from 1966. And that just wasn't possible. And, you know, on tour, they did, you know, they, that's, you know, the, the touring or the, the new mamas and papas are on tour sounded like, you know, an oldies concert, you sure. know? Uh, but yeah, John was trying in, in the studio to, to, you know, revamp this thing and make it new and relevant and, you know, um, interesting. And, uh, the, you know, they put, I, in my opinion, I really like, I'm not going to you know say they're, it's some of the greatest undiscovered music you're ever going to hear, but it's enjoyable. It's good stuff. This, uh, you know, I, it has almost kind of a, that early eighties, new wave kind of elements, just slightly, not, yeah. not, you know, you're not going to throw it on and think you're listening to echo and the Bunnyman, but you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, you're gonna, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's got that, it's got that sound to it. And yeah, he was always trying to, to make it, make it relevant. And we, the public is, is highly resistible that, uh, you know, I, I can be guilty of that myself too. Oh, sure. Well, no, and and I think that to, to have that, uh, just to stay on this tangent a little bit, to kind of have that combination of, I like I like what I like for the reasons I like it, and there's a nostalgia factor to it, and there's a comfort factor. It is absolutely that's wonderful. That's why old music survives. Mm-hmm. But I've always liked to couple that with the sense of well, the reason I liked it then, one of the main reasons was because it was something new I discovered that I had never heard before, and it just wowed me. Yeah, and and I like the idea as both a musician and a listener to keep that part of yourself open, where you're like, well, there's something else out there that if I really, if I find it, if I take the smallest effort, I will find something that will hit me in the same or almost the same way that was just released last year or six months ago. And especially for a creative musician, who's not just 
not, and I don't mean just, but if you are just a musician who is doing session work or part of a band, but not creating the music, you'll do, you can do anything and, and find a way to love it. But if you're the creator, that vibrancy of wanting to create, I think it's vital to always be willing to be open to finding the new and yeah, being right. wowed by it. You know, you know, it's like I'm right now I'm writing a book on I'm working on a book, my second one on Waylon Jennings. And um, I am not look I'm not looking to make it a carbon copy of the Mamas and the Papas book. I want it to be similar. You know, it's yep. going to be a, a character study, but I don't want to tell it. Yeah, I want to tell the story in Waylon's way. I don't want to tell it the way I told them. You, know, you just can't rewrite the same thing over and over and make it, you know, expect it to be successful, especially if you, you know, music is a business, too. And you want to, you know, you want to sell music. You want and it's it's like it's like I said in the book, you know, like um, with the uh, when, when John was courting the uh, the uh, San Francisco groups to come play the Mon- Monterey Pop Festival and the the Monterey, the, the San Francisco groups, especially the Grateful Dead, were really guilty of. No, man, we're just in it for the music. We don't want to be commercialized. And this. OK, yeah, but you just so happen to be on Warner Brothers Records, you know, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and I think I think they're interested in you selling records and, you know, making helping to you know, <laughs> right. pay off your advance and make they make the company money, you know, so uh, nice try. You know, it's it's. You know, yeah, we do. Everybody, you want to have that because you want to admit, but that's you know, money makes the you know, money makes the 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 we the, the world turn around in a in that in that world turn around, and uh, you know, you need to if you want to sustain any kind of success, you need to be making uh, need to be making your company some money. Yes, and and I think that the 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 industry evolved the way all industries do and matured in some ways, good and bad. But the, I think the good way is that artists stopped trying to protest that they were making a living. You know, they they said, "Hey, yes, we can be true to our art, but we are also this is also a job, and we need to to have one eye on that as well." And then there wasn't that sense of. You know, a lot of people got disillusioned because there was a feeling of hypocrisy among like that that era because, oh, we're peace and love, but we also want to capitalize on it. Mm-hmm. And there was a conflict there. But then it kind of evolved a couple decades later to where like, well, no, you you can have both. You know, the money you're making can do what it needs to do, but it can be, you know, uh, it may be not the driving force, but you know it's there. But then still stay true to your artistic spirit. You know? Yeah, it doesn't have to be an either or proposition. It can be yeah. a both and, you know. And it, it makes me interested to, I mean, I'm sure it's going to be years down the line, but to read your next book, because to, to me, whether you're an author or a musician or whatever, I think a lot of us are uh, can be afraid to, quote unquote, do something in a different way or try something different because we feel like, oh, well, that's then people aren't going to know that that's me and whatever. And we underestimate the fact that everything we do has our imprint on it, has our voice in. And it doesn't matter. Like my band rec has done, you know, anything from like power pop music to kind of neo folk music to, you know, electronic dance music and everything. And it was when I divorced myself from the idea that, oh, if I change too much, it's not going to be me or the band Mm -hmm. and realize that, every single thing still sounds like it's a part of that same voice. Yeah, that absolutely. It gave me the freedom to explore. Yeah, and I like I like to listen to songwriters. I'm a big fan of, of songwriters, especially like, you know, like T- Carol King and Jerry Goffin in the 60s or even like mm-hmm. Neil Young and, or Burt Bacharach and Hal David. You can always like they change, but you can always 
hear that uh you know the, the you can see their fingerprint or you can feel it in the music it's it's like you, when you hear nicolette larson do a lot of love by neil young it still sounds like a neil like i can hear neil young's imprint in there you know it's right. definitely got his phrasing it's got his style you know and it's you know she turned it into kind of like a disco dancer which which i love, love um it. you know but um it's it was it's got his it's got his uh fingerprint all over it yeah and and speaking of fingerprints since we are talking about the book uh about the mamas and the papas all leaves are brown um you were discussing how I wanted to come back to this, how, you know, Cass was kind of mixed out of the, the final album and all of that. And it, it brought to mind that, and, and I want everybody to know this because the first few chapters have a lot to do with John. He, he was the, he was really the driving force behind all of this, but you give, you know, I think a balanced amount of, of time and attention to every single member of that band. And that helps to illustrate how every member of that band was, was, vital to creating the sound that they had yeah it's true you know i think you know i there is you know uh it did start off as a john phillips biography um and then you know the the story of the mamas and the papas just just completely took over as i was writing it and i was like if i continue just to make this a john phillips biography, this book's gonna be 800 pages you know so <laughs> uh, and i had a word limit so um so yeah i wanted to get everybody uh you know equal opportunity and you know obviously i dedicated a chapter to cast when she got introduced to the group when she when she entered the picture and you know michelle same thing uh and and then like denny it's like denny was kind of the tough one because really as the the success grew he really kind of retreated like he just kind of you know he got really kind of into the alcohol and crown royal and was right. really just kind of pounding pining away for michelle uh because you know she wasn't going back to him she you know she hey it was great while it lasted i'm not interested and that really kind of crushed him and was always kind of looking a way to try to kind of win her back. But it just when he saw that it wasn't, he just kind of just withdrew. And, you know, he, he's the one that um, and, you know, and I, I had asked his friend, uh, Pat LaCroix, who was in his band, the Halifax Three, about that. And, you know, I said, you know, was he because they stayed in contact throughout that time. And, um, you know, he told me that, no, that's, that's really kind of the way it was. He just kind of retreated. You know, he just hung out at his home, partied with his friends, you know, had the, you know, he got involved with a woman named Linda Woodward who eventually married. And, you know, from, I think they were dating from 67 on, but really like kept a very, very low profile. And I think the book really matches that because, you know, what, what else can you write about somebody who's just not really around doing anything other than that, you know, he's home drinking. <laughs> so, yeah. well, yeah. And it's interesting. Cause you, yeah, that that's true. He, he, he kind of pops in and out of the story in that way of being mm -hmm. there but not there and i love that because it does it does show again it, you know you, there's not that much that you can say about somebody that's not that public so who what how much can you know but it's still paint the exact picture of that person that you you know you would think yeah and he was strong there at the beginning he you know especially you know when he and john became uh friends and they were in the new journeyman and then they're in the virgin islands and you know and they're doing lsd and he's putting headphones making them listen to beatles music then he has a strong presence you know uh, you know from that from that time period up to when they signed to dunhill and then when things went sour between him and michelle it was just like uh, you know he just kind of checked out 
So, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and, and, and that mirrors his life. You know, he lived even after the, the breakup of the band, the final breakup, you know, he put out a couple of solo albums, which is a shame because he had a great singing voice, great rock and roll tenor, very underestimated, mm-hmm. underappreciated rock and roll tenor. And, you know, and the, the, the fact that he didn't have a solo career is just to me is criminal because he was such a great singer. And, you know, he only released a couple albums, you know, barely did anything after that music wise. You know, he he had a you know, he had a short lived show and you know, like a variety show in his home right. in Nova Scotia. And then, you know, he, had, he was on a kid's show for a while and did it. And then, you know, then when, you know, the 60s was kind of cool again to look back on and revere, like, you know, back in the late 80s when we we're starting to have 60s revivals. Yeah. You know, he was like in every documentary talking about the gold days, you know, and anything talking about um, the mamas and the papas, you know, and uh, uh, and he even eventually put on a one man show, uh, but uh, really kind of retreated into a quiet life. Yeah, when, usually when I listen to a band's catalog, I then listen to all the solo careers of those people. And I haven't done that yet, but I would like to hear Denny's stuff, you know. Yeah, Denny's got, you know, he's got two albums, uh, you know, they're not going to. They're not going to blow you away, but they're good. There's the, mm-hmm. the, yeah, the one thing I like about his uh, second album is called Waiting for a Song is he does came out in 74. And it's actually the, as it's the last album. It features three of the mamas and the papas. It's got Denny, Michelle and Cass on it. Ah, so wow. so it's almost it's three quarters of the mamas and the papas, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, so it's and uh, he does a, actually a, a song called "Good Night and Good Morning," which was a Hall and Oates song, which was one of their oh. uh, you know uh, from the, one of, from their very first album. So it's kind of neat to see you know Denny in '74 doing a Hall and Oates album. Had, wow, had yeah, a song had a good ear for good songwriting. Right, right, and I you know I'm I'm originally from Philly, so any Hall and Oates I'll be into. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, and and that, and I kind of want to touch a little bit on everybody, but it kind of brings me to Michelle because she, in some ways, was the most interesting, only because she didn't have any overriding addiction. She is the only one of them who's still alive. And hearing the story and John and knowing he had a wife and then he cheated on her, you know, my my initial impression, you know, being a whatever progressive person or whatever was like, oh, the the dude is just, you know, messing around and, you know, doing all the screwing up. But she found her own kind of path of being like, well, I like this person. Oh, no, I like this person. And I am going to be uh frenemies with with Cass and then do this thing with Denny, but then go back to John and then go to go somewhere, you know, go somewhere else entirely and was a catalyst in a lot of ways for some of the the tumult that happened in the band, even just even discounting the drugs and all that. Yes, yeah, it almost sounds pathological, but it's you know, I think it really just betrays her age and her uh, immaturity because right. she didn't mature. You know, she didn't stay that way her entire life. You know, mm-hmm. she eventually settled down. Uh, I think she did drugs with all of them because that's what that's what they did. You know, and I'm just going to follow the crowd. And then when she broke away from that, she became quite sober. You know, I I. I I, I, mean, I can't speak for her, you know, on her life, but I, from what I, from what I've seen and heard, it doesn't sound like she was an abuser, you know, uh, a, after she left John and, you know, she did have that crazy marriage to Dennis Hopper that lasted for eight days. But I think right. after that, she, you know, she had her Hollywood career and, uh, you know, in the eighties just kind of settled down, 
you know, and I think having China and raising China was important to her uh, and to do that. But um, yeah, she was for sure the cat, you know, the, the, you couldn't have the mamas and the papas without her because because, because of the, her antics and the things she did. Um, it was a real catalyst, uh, a real she I say to people all the time, she's one of the greatest rock and roll muses of all time, like right up there with um you know, Patty Harrison and, uh, you know, I'm sure we can probably think of a few others. Right. And, um, you know, she, uh, gave us some great songs from, uh, from cheating on John, you know, and, uh, uh, and she wasn't a great singer by any means, but John was able to get the the best out of her. The the way that her opening to dedicated to the one I love is, is a work of art, I think. Mm, And, um, you know, it's, uh, she didn't maintain a singing career and and she's one of those people like I've heard her sing. It's kind of like Cass. Cass is similar too. with John. She was better. Without John, mm-hmm. she was average, mm-hmm. and and not to say that not to say that for for Cass for vocal wise, Cass always had a great voice, but the, the songs that she sang that John wrote are much more interesting to me than her solo career because it doesn't have that edge, it doesn't have you know that that sound that was really tailored. She she you know there's is always a new producer coming in, a new arranger, you know, and it just and she was really more interested in show tunes and Broadway and right. you know she didn't. You know, her I, her music, I, I wrote in the book that for somebody who hung out with David Crosby and Joni Mitchell and Eric Clapton, her music had kind of more in common with the 1910 Fruit Gun Company or, you know, <laughs> any of those bubblegum yeah. groups back in those days. Yeah. It wasn't really cutting edge rock and roll. That And that I think you're right. Like there's that sense of uh, even when people talk about like, you know, John and Paul, uh, you know, from the Beatles, how when they broke up, they did great stuff, but it wasn't quite as great, you know, in some ways to some people's minds. And I think it's that sense of kind of yin yang or push pull or, you know, uh, contrasting spirits that that when you step out of the thing that you think is is, you know, you do best, you're out of your comfort zone. It it opens, you know, it kind of brings out things that are unexpected and more alive and as much as she, you know, show tunes and I know, you know, that was sort of where she was heading towards when you hear her wail on those uh, couple of mamas and papa songs where she just lets loose. She's like a proto, you know, Janis Joplin. Yeah. You can see how that synergy made her better. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, you, you lose something with that. I'm, and I'm sure there's probably people out there who disagree with me who think Cass's solo stuff is just, you know, hunky dory and just yeah. all, you know, but and it's, and it's, it's kind of like your your Lennon McCartney analogy. It's like it's, and it was kind of an illusion. It's like, you know, it's, we, 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 we were led to think for a long time that every song that has Lennon McCartney, the two sat down and wrote it together, you know, where right. it was hardly the case, especially anything after like 1965. It just really wasn't the case. Uh, they were kind of writing by themselves and keeping right. that Lennon McCartney moniker going. But yeah, it's um, it is it is interesting. It's um, it's. I personally think Cass sounds better with John Phillips, but obviously that 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 was just something that couldn't be sustained, you know. Those and, and it is interesting that dichotomy because they didn't really like each other, but they they really yeah. worked well together. Yeah, and I think that was part of it. I mean, they somehow found a way to work together despite not liking each other, and then yeah. you could feel that. And it was almost like they were saying, "Well." Oh, I challenge you to do this. Well, I am going to do that and I'm going to do it better mm-hmm. than you think. And that just, mm, just, it just brings it out the competitive spirit, brings out the best in you, you know? Yeah. 
Uh, we don't have much time left, and I kind of wanted to touch on this only because as a kid, uh, other than remembering, you know, several of their their hits, uh, you know, we were always told the story of how Cass died. And, you know, what's what I found interesting is, first of all, whether you know it or not, and you can look it up. She died of like a, you know, health, you know, chronic health issues and heart and all and all that stuff. But as a kid, you know, there was a story of her choking and it had to do with her obesity and that everyone kind of threw that in there. But the most interesting part to me was I I was told as a kid it was a chicken bone in the story. In your in your story, it's a ham sandwich. I talked to a friend of mine in a, in a band I'm in, and he said he he heard it when he was a kid. It was a meatball. Oh, really? And, yeah, and and it's just it, <laughs> yeah. I'm like the things people will make up just uh, to you know stick to stereotypes, but that, it's that was, horrible. Yeah, yeah. Well, the 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 original one was ham sandwich. I know it's you know you know people here chicken bone and meatball but you know she did have a ham sandwich on her nightstand uh and she you know her physician when they when they she was found uh, dead she was in harry nilson's london apartment he had let her borrow that while she was doing a two-week stand over there to rave reviews and she, her performances were great and really no sign of anything bad you know like she wasn't like sick going into it and she she passed away in her sleep from heart failure you know, she was on drugs, a lot of drugs beginning in the early 60s and LSD and marijuana. And then she got into heroin and, you know, God knows what else. Um, and she also was doing these yo-yo diets, which, you know, when she started, when she left the mamas and the papas and she was doing the she was in Las Vegas and doing a show there and she'd be up and down. She'd lose 100 pounds. She gained 50 back. She'd lose 100 more, you know. And yeah. it was just really, really unhealthy for her. And it just she just succumbed, uh, unfortunately. Right. And uh, the, the, the physician who was attending to her, he was a London based physician. She had hired him or I guess hired is, is a really not the right word. But, you know, she, he was helping her at that, at that time, looking in on her. And he came when she they said she was dead. He was one of the first on the scene, was with a reporter and said that uh, he, he said, um, you know, pointed out that there was a ham sandwich on the nightstand. So that might've contributed to her death. The reporter kind of ran with it, you know, yeah. and a couple of days later they did a proper autopsy and found it was heart failure, but mm -hmm. you know, the headline, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, recapture the headline once it's out there or to put it back into the bottle. So it's yeah, fix my metaphors, but yeah. um, you know, so yeah. uh, sensationalism. Yeah. It yeah. really has. And it's, it stayed, you know, I, I hear people telling me it all the time, you know, oh. you don't know how many jokes I've heard about it while promoting this book. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, I bet. I, yeah, it, it reminds me of the, the in, a, in the sort of the flip side of the way Karen Carpenter died. That her heart just gave out because it, it was just too much stress on the binging and purging, and the her weight, you know, Cass's weight fluctuation and all that right. makes more sense. The last thing I want to point out because we're really running out of time is is um, one of the things that makes this book so satisfying is uh, is this: you're watching a movie, it tells a story. Uh, about let's say it's a fictionalized story of real people or whatever it is uh your hope is after the last scene goes there will be words on the screen that say what happened after the story ended and the last part of this book does exactly that you go through 
up almost up until the present, like the date of whenever you published it, of what happened to the people who died when, what happened in their careers and, you know, and kids and stuff like that. And I love when a story ends that way. Yeah, again, that's, uh, you know, you had to give everybody a little bit of closure because the story is three quarters of the way done. You know, uh, right. Michelle is still with us, thankfully, and uh, yeah. hopefully lives a long, long time. <laughs> don't have yep. to write that one. But yeah, uh, yeah you know, uh, one of my publicists said it best because this movie has been option. Uh, this book has been optioned for a movie and for a limited edition series. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully one of those two would ha- will happen. Awesome. But, um, there's built in cliffhangers. You know, the, whoever writes a screenplay for, for this does not have to, you know, especially if it's a if it's a limited edition series, doesn't have to you know, look for cliffhangers. There's one for every episode um that uh, that's built into the story you know and uh that that's completely natural so um but uh yeah it's uh you know it is they you know they've they all we we've lost all the three of the four of them and you know you gotta when you write a book like this you gotta tell everybody what happened you know yeah and uh uh, if i i told my publisher at the time i said hey if it's successful we can write a sequel and we can go more in depth uh you know from uh from after they broke up to to the to uh, the current day but there won't be much music in it (laughs) no no right yeah and yeah and that's and that and that's exciting that it's been optioned um i i look forward to hearing and seeing the developments of that yeah, me too <laughs> uh, yeah I bet. well thank you again for spending this time with me i was really excited for this because i loved the book so much and i wanted to get into it even more and uh i appreciate you you hanging with me well thank you nick i really appreciate you coming to my book party and we uh, gave you the book yeah. and uh uh just uh having me on your show and i i really enjoy having the long form talks with music lovers it's uh very satisfying awesome awesome and everyone out there go to scottshayauthor.com to find out more information and and most importantly for this episode go get this book wherever you can find it you, you will you will not be disappointed you will be blown away uh thanks again scott Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you to everyone for watching and listening. As always, my objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. I'll talk to you next week. All the leaves are brown And the sky is gray On a winter's day I'd be saving more If I was in L.A. California dreaming On such a winter day Stopped into a church I passed along the way
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.